Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. A new Prime Minister and now a new Defence Secretary. So who is Ben Wallace? Maritime protection in the Gulf, how does it work? Britain is to send troops to Mali, but what will they be doing? And Sitrep Summer Reads delve deep into military history and foreign affairs with the Defence Editor's best books. So, Boris Johnson is Britain's new Prime Minister and as part of a massive cabinet cull, he sacked Penny Mordaunt as Secretary of State for Defence and appointed Ben Wallace. But who is he? I'm joined by Defence and Security Analyst Professor Michael Clark and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello. Uh, Professor Clark, what can you tell us about Ben Wallace? He was in the army, wasn't he? Uh, yes, he was a captain in the Scots Guards and he did his sort of standard eight years in the Scots Guards, uh, served in where you'd expect really, in Cyprus, G- Germany, Northern Ireland. He distinguished himself in Northern Ireland, mentioned in, in dispatches, and he was wounded uh, on operations there. Um, he then he joined Kinetic, uh, which is what used the DERA is used to be the Defence and Evaluation Research Agency. So he worked for Kinetic for a while, and then he became a Scottish uh, Parliamentary MP an MSP uh, in 1999. He gave that up in order to stand for Westminster, won a marginal seat in uh, Wire and Preston North uh, in 2005, and then he's held a couple of relatively uh, minor jobs in government under Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and then Security Minister, which gave him much more prominence. Um, Politically, uh, he's very much a a right winger. He's he's what you'd expect of somebody with a defence interest. He's voted always in favour of uh, Trident. He's pro the armed forces, as as you'd expect. He's very pro Operation Shader against Daesh. He's voted against extending the terms of the military covenant. And on social issues, he's, he is very much a right-winger. He's, he's vote, his voting record shows him to be uh, anti-gay rights, anti-same-sex marriage, anti-voluntary euthanasia. Uh, he doesn't, he ha- he's voted against extending human rights uh, and uh, equality legislation, and he's in favour of more smoking bans. Mm. So you can see a kind of fairly consistent line. He's a socially right-wing conservative with an interest in defence, um, but no particular linkage to it mm. since he left the army some years ago. So on, on paper... So he could have made education minister on that grounds. Because yes. <laughs> the last one did. On, on paper, I mean, Christopher, do you think he looks like he's a good choice? He's not a bad choice, is he? I mean, I mean, the, the truth is, when you get a, a change of government, unless you've got um, something going with, with, let's say, the Treasury, which is the most important part, isn't it? There's no difference. You put somebody into the job and they settle into that job. And at the end of it, if you want to know whether they're any good at it, it's really how good they behaved in cabinet. Did they get you an extra 2%? Did mm. they get this sort of thing through? Or that sort of thing through? And that's what that, that, that's, 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 uh, that's how it's judged. Michael Clark, uh, so this all meant that Penny Bordant was relegated to the backbenches after just 85 mm. days as Defence Secretary. But she did behave pretty well, didn't she, as Defence Secretary? She did, and the MOD liked her, and I think wanted her to stay because because the sense was if she was confirmed in the job after the change of prime minister for the next, say, two years to, to three years, then she, she had a number of, of good ideas and plans. She wanted to back, back 
modernising defence, the, the use of better information across Whitehall to put things into context. Uh, I was at a, a small dinner with her a couple of weeks ago, and when she was talking about these innovative ideas, I said, are you getting any buying from Whitehall? She said, no, absolutely not, absolutely nothing, because everybody is so fixated on Brexit. The, the, the whole of Whitehall... She couldn't stay... Morale she... is very low, and the new Prime Minister obviously to do something about that. Mike, mm. she couldn't stay though, could she? Because she supported Mr Hunt. Uh, Michael, we'll just leave it for the moment with you because we're having some problems with the line. We'll give you a call back and try and sort out the line. Uh, Christopher, as things stand, um, we don't yet know about the fates of Defence Minister Tobias Elwood, Minister for Defence People and Veterans, Mark Lancaster, Armed Forces Minister, and Stuart Andrew, Minister for Defence Procurement. Do you think there are going to be changes there? Uh, Tobias Elwood will be a bit of a sad one if he if he gets dropped. Or he might be moved into something in a sort of ministerial, uh, you know, minister of state level elsewhere. You have to remember all these appointments, and Penny Morden's a perfect example, as I was just saying, that, you know, she voted for Hunt. So she weren't going to keep the job, was she? Because everybody that the prime minister, the new prime minister, has around his, the 22, or whatever it is, around his uh, uh, cabinet table must support him personally rather than just the policies. It's all right saying, well, I agree with that particular policy, even if it's nothing to do with Brexit. No, you have to you have to almost swear blind you, you, you support mm. the high priest. So looking at them, it, it, doesn't actually, uh, it doesn't actually matter, excepting for some of the issues. Mm. If you happen to be there, and also a lot of the staff. Now, Penny Morden is a very good example where her staff were completely, in the short period, complete, became completely and utterly uh, uh, devoted to her. And what she was doing for big issues, such as uh, the historic uh, investigations into incidents with soldiers, for example, uh, and she was she was making sure that everybody realised that you, you you had to do something rather special mm. if you're going to do that. You had to give reassurances. Now, you get a new man in. Is he going to follow that on? Well, you know. Well, that, that's a question, Michael Clark. Ben Wallace to make an impact at this time is going to be quite difficult. Although obviously there are some pressing uh, crises internationally at the moment. What do you think Ben Wallace should be concentrating on? Well, the first thing he's got to think about is the Iranian crisis. I mean, that's on the Prime Minister's desk as well. But this particular problem we've got in Australia for Hormuz, everyone will look to the MOD now to implement a stronger government policy. That's the first thing. He's also got this question of historic abuse inquiries to look at, and he's, uh, that's still unresolved within MOD. So he's got to do something about that. And he's got now to think about where Gavin Williamson left it, which Penny Morden was taking up, which is that there's still a potential hole in the pretty big hole in the budget and the modernizing defense program was looking for another 360 million from the treasury in the autumn spending round in order to make good on this transformation uh, fund so he's got to come up with some cash relatively small amount in the scheme of things but he's got to show that he's getting cash from the treasury to make good on what his predecessors by two that is penny Morden and gavin williamson both committed to so he's got three particular tasks which he's got to address i think fairly urgently and there's another task and that is to look at the future of mark Settle, uh, the cabinet secretary um there has been in the cabinet office under the previous Prime Minister, quite an investigation, as everybody should know, uh, in into the way defence spending, defence policy will be going in future. If that sort of, if if if, if basically the system survives under the new Prime Minister, 
then the new Defence Secretary uh, will know exactly what will be expected in things such as future defence spending, future policy, what defence is expected to do. And I think it's probably the biggest issue uh, is the is the settle uh, uh, legacy now this week? Jeremy Hunt, who was foreign secretary at the time, called for a European maritime protection force to ensure the safety of British shipping in the Gulf. Here he is speaking in the Commons on Monday. Because freedom of navigation is a vital interest of every nation, we will now seek to put together a European-led maritime protection mission to support safe passage of both crew and cargo in this vital region. Well, let's talk to strategic forecaster and risk expert Rear Admiral Chris Parry. Good to speak to you today. How do you put together this sort of force? I'll put that question to you, Christopher. How do you put together? Well, the first thing you've got to do, you've got to decide whether the uh, whether the system or whether the idea under uh, Mr Hunt goes ahead. First and foremost, is it a European force? Then secondly, you have to see what the uh, where we're talking about. You've got a stretch of water that's about two miles wide. You've got about 13, 14 ships going through it every day. What are you going to do? You're going to hold them in one place mm. and then put a couple of frigates with them and escort them through safely. Or are you going to uh, to have a, a random uh, uh, setup? Are you going to have a, a convoy? Then how many ships do you need? So if you put two ships, let's say two ships, in a thirteen in a in a two mile wide waterway, that's quite a lot of shipping. But if you put two warships in there, let's say Type Twenty Three frigates, have you got two mm. Type Twenty Three frigates uh, spare? And then have you got two more who can yeah. come up and relieve them when the time is right? We can talk to Rear Admiral Chris Parry now. Um, Chris Parry, what would the operational plan be for this kind of mission? Well, it depends on the task. Um, you've got two options, really. Uh, as Krista indicated, you can either close convoy or you can do area protection, where you put an exclusion zone around each of the ships you want to protect, and you actually protect the area. And if um, the Iranians want to go inside the um, exclusion zones, you then take measures to uh, stop that. Um, I think the real issue out in the Gulf is whether we've got the firepower to take the Iranians on. Um, it's a bit like, again, poker at the moment. And uh, although Montrose and other Type 23s can take on uh, speedboats, helicopters, all that sort of thing, if the Iranians decide to uh, bring their surface-to-surface -surface missiles uh, to alert to support that or, or start bringing some of their aircraft into play, we're going to be overmatched. There's mm -hmm. no question about that. And would you need close air support for this kind of mission? I don't see any modern mission where you wouldn't actually have joint capabilities in place. Um, I was quite surprised, actually, when I heard the um, Foreign Secretary say what his, his plan was. I thought it was really a cross between a post-dated check and a damage limitation exercise politically, uh, because I didn't think there was any real sense in it. I mean, what was ironic is that there was a Spanish uh, frigate just outside the Gulf that could have helped us straight away, but didn't care to. Mm. Uh, and I think rejecting the American offer of help um, was absolutely extraordinary. And it showed just how muddled the strategic thinking was uh, at governmental level. On the, on the one hand, you could have said, look, you know, we, um, we support our European partners in wanting the nuclear deal to stay in place with regard to the government in Tehran. But our fight is with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Totally different thing. And we could have said to the Americans, yeah, we're happy for you to come along and help us sort out this bunch of thugs that are shooting down drones and um, and uh, stealing tankers. I mean, is, uh, is there any chance that this force will actually not now transpire, given that Jeremy Hunt is not in the post, or, or is that a given that it will still continue? 
No, I think I, I'm very sceptical that it'll happen at all because uh, I think um, the new government, if it's sensible, uh, will come to an accommodation with the Iranians over what has happened, certainly on the basis that it's not uh, a moral equivalence issue. After all, the Iranians broke the law. We didn't. Um, if I'm honest, what I would do if I were sitting down at this game of poker, I'd sell the Iranian oil in the Grace One. Um, I'd take uh, some money off for the insult and uh, also... Um, it's not going to happen, Chris, is it? Let's face it. It's really not going to happen. You, you haven't heard my deal yet. Go on, carry on, carry on, go on. Uh, yeah, you take uh, some a fee off uh, the insult and also the um, uh, stealing the tanker. Uh, we get Naz- Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe back. We pay them the money minus the discount <laughs> and they can have their tanker and crew back. You got the That's- job, Chris. You got the job. No, but do you know what? That is the vocabulary and the tactics that the Iranians understand. Part of the problem here is we're not talking the same language as the Iranians. We're talking the language almost, which is Imperial Britain talking. This is how we're going to do it. How dare you do that? It's interesting. You're quite right. If you go back... If it's, uh, it's actually the language to the mafia, and that's what they understand. Um, Michael Clark's listening, uh, still with us. Um, Michael, is it true that the only way really um, to resolve this crisis at the moment is to persuade both the Americans and the Iranians that there is a possibility of having a new nuclear deal, Iran nuclear deal, and in some way selling to each side that they're getting something better than there was there before? Well, it's in Britain's interest to try to get both sides to dial it down. But a new nuclear deal is out of the question because the Iranian foreign minister last week made an offer. He said that we would actually bring forward Iran's participation in the IAEA additional protocol. Now, that wouldn't be enough, but but any diplomat would tell you that that's the basis for negotiation. And the Americans turned it down flat. They wouldn't even begin to talk about it. So I think it's fairly clear the United States doesn't really, they don't want a deal because the the old deal, the JCPOA, the the, the old Iran nuclear deal, was Obama's deal. And Trump has set his, his face against that. The other thing is that the Americans are convinced that they're almost, they're almost there with Iran. One more push because the Iranian economy is on its knees. And so the Americans want to keep up maximum pressure. And although that that is not entirely true, I think it's true enough for the Iranians to try to create distraction tactics, Mm. which is what they're doing in the Strait of Hormuz. So they're trying to hurt other people so that they will actually put pressure on the United States. And that's the that's where we are with it in the Gulf. Now, as Chris Parry said, we've got to try to offer better protection to maritime interests in the Strait of Hormuz. But if we find ourselves as we're lining up behind the United States, then we're lining up behind an irreconcilable conflict between Tehran and Washington and it isn't the case that, that there is a deal to be done we're mm. not there yet the, the the deal that was done has gone um, it won't come back for some time and if there is a deal it won't look the same as the old one so that's in I'm afraid is where we are it's it's fairly depressing mm. uh, Chris Barrett bring it back to the protection of uh British flagged ships in that part of the world. Um, The Royal Navy is now officially tasked to protect them. Uh, How long do you think it's going to be before another one is seized? Well, let's go back to uh, the issue of uh, what the Iranians want. Um, At the moment, uh, their sort of desire to get their tanker and the million and a half barrels of oil back is not going very well. Uh, if you carry on with my poker analogy, they're going to want to put another stake on the table. So I suspect as soon as they can, they are going to steal another tanker uh, if they can get away with it. All right. Rear Admiral Chris Perry, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you for joining us. Sit.
Prep with Kate Still to come, British troops will go to Mali next year, so what can they expect when they get there? And got a page turner for the summer? Sit reps reading recommendations. PFBS Sit Rep. Next year, Britain is sending 250 troops to Mali. It'll be in support of United Nations peacekeeping efforts in the war-torn African country. Alistair Bunkle is Defence and Security Correspondent for Sky News and was there with the now former Defence Secretary Penny Mordaunt at the weekend. Alistair, what is the situation there at the moment? Very bad. Really bad. Uh, They are fighting a war on a number of fronts. Islamist extremists in a number of groups, but specifically Al-Qaeda and Islamic State in West Africa. The French are there in large numbers, around 4,500 troops. There is a massive UN peacekeeping force in excess of 13,000 forces, multinational, as is the case with the United Nations. But the situation, the security situation in the country is deteriorating, and it is deteriorating rapidly. That is why the UK government has got a new focus on that part of the world. That is why the UK is going to deploy 250 troops as part of this UN peacekeeping force. And what will they be doing exactly? Well, this is interesting. So they're going to be right in the thick of it. Unlike, for example, the peacekeeping mission that they're currently on in South Sudan, which is much more engineers, logisticians, building a hospital for the UN workers there. This is proper on-the-ground stuff. So they're going to be a part of a long-range reconnaissance team going up country in small units into the thick of the civilian population, but that means right into the midst of the Islamists, right into the midst of the terrorists. It is not going to be easy, but it is something that the British Armed Forces can do, unlike most other militaries around the world, and that is why Britain has put them forward. So you were there with Penny Mordaunt at the weekend. Just tell me what what you saw when you were there. Well, I spent a bit of time with her and a bit of time uh, away from her. Um, In Bamako, in the capital, I wasn't with her. We were um, speaking to some human traffickers, which is another major problem, which is an offset of of what is happening in the wider conflict and a consequence of that. And it's absolutely tragic. The thousands, particularly of women, who are being trafficked into Mali uh, and sold often into prostitution. And then we went up country to Gao, which is kind of the epicentre of the French fight and the crossroads for a lot of the migration as well. Uh, and I was with Penny up there. And it's a big base. I Look... Uh, it seems we've lost Alistair there. Christopher, uh, strategically, um, what's at stake here for the UK in Mali? Why would it have such an interest in stability in that country? Well, um, it's important to get the stability thing right the way through that part of Africa. Uh, first and foremost, there's the historical reason why you do it. And that's not just historically in terms of imperial Britain or anything like that. It's a realisation from about the 1980s onwards that the great part of the security of the Western world would evolve Africa and be in Africa. And also when you see, for example, the the way that the, uh, let's say, the United Nations having to tackle or trying to tackle the way of rape as an example of being used as a war weapon, that is Africa right the way through, uh, not just at the moment, and it just doesn't go back to, uh, uh, say, the wars of the 1960s and 70s. And that is the obligation which the United Kingdom has always felt very strongly about it. Uh, Tony Blair, thinking of changing of prime ministers, Tony Blair, when he left the job as prime minister, uh, he said, I hope my successor will really grasp this thing and realise that the future of stability and a lot of the stability which will involve um, 
well, special forces having to be involved uh, and sent rather than just building a hospital. Mm. As, uh, and, and, and that's what we're actually seeing now. And we are seeing it very much, say, in South Sudan as well, as you were talking yep. uh, to them last week about this. And the important thing is that you can do it you know how to do it. And it takes the whole United Nations into a next pledge, a pledge just where I'm standing around in a blue helmet. Uh, we've got Alistair Bunkle back. It seems we're having some communication problems today on the programme. I don't know what it can be. Um, Alistair, uh, just, just remind us who's going, which British troops are going and how long they'll be out for. I don't know, actually, is the answer to that. Um, and uh, the reason I say that is because it, it hasn't been decided. It will be from the infantry and they won't be special forces but they will be sort of a highly trained cohort and as i said beforehand it is something that britain feels it can do and a lot of other nations can't do and i think the united nations agrees with that i spoke to the swedish force commander out there who is in charge of the un mission and he was absolutely thrilled that this was happening he said it's exactly what we need this is this is precisely what i need to be able to uh, prosecute my mission um and as for how long they'll be out there for uh, again i mean that needs to be decided you look at the um the, the UN commitment, the peacekeeping commitment elsewhere in the world, and Britain has a, a has a habit of extending it. Um, but they will be out there from sort of early-ish next year, probably from sort of about March next year, because that will coincide with the conclusion of the South Sudan mission. Also, oh, an interesting thought talking to some people in the uh, in, in the United Nations about this, and your point about what Britain can do and what other countries sometimes can't do. It's also what other countries don't want to do. Mm. And that is they're happy to go and build yeah. the hospital walls, uh, but they're not happy to get into a position where they might have to be quite active. And, okay. and especially at the moment, for example, of what's gone on in the trial of the Dutch in what happened in Srebrenica or didn't happen right. in Srebrenica. We'll have to leave it there for the moment. Alistair Bunkle, thank you very much for your time today. Now, what are you reading this summer? There are lists in all the papers and websites at the moment of what to take to the beach. They have one thing in common, no military books. So let's put that right with some recommendations from the London Evening Standards defence editor, Robert Fox. Hello, Robert. Hello, yeah. Um, I've got your list. Uh, tell me about Goliath by uh, Sean McFate. Oh, this book um, is really based on why Western armies don't win wars anymore and what we should do about it. Uh, he's a former airborne soldier in the US, uh, mercenary. Um, it's wonderful. It's quite wild, this book, because it's looking to the future where states won't be the same. And he's very good at informal, non-state sponsored armies, where the mercenaries, which he thinks will be the answer to everything. But he comes up with loads of information. That's why it's a terrific read mm. um, about the ISIS presence still in Iraq, which we're seriously underestimating, and this sort of freelance, almost very substantial um, uh, Islamic militant army uh, in the stands, which seems to be almost out for hire. And the wonderful things like things like that. But it it has wacky ideas too that we are too much technology based and so on. But I think some of his visionary stuff is that you pay people who want to fight, and that we will have a lot of mercenaries, and we should have our own foreign legion. Well, we've got half a one in the Gurkhas. I think he's right on the money. But he writes thrillers as well as being a prof. Mm -hmm. uh, at Georgetown University, and it's great fun, this book. And, and he actually went into this line of work having had an interesting conversation with David Petraeus, I believe. Is that right? What is so fascinating, too, is that he actually debunks 
an awful lot of Petraeus's own ideas uh, of population-centric warfare. He said it simply doesn't work going out there uh, as they tried a bit in Iraq, but certainly in Afghanistan to rebuild a nation when you don't understand the culture and most of your troops haven't a clue on, 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 on language. Again, the Gurkhas come back into it because when the British forces, we well know um, that they got on terribly well because they had a means of communication. No, it wasn't Urdu. Um, they didn't have much Pashto, but they had a common interest in Bollywood. Mm. Next on your list, you put Our Boys, the Parachute Regiment in the Falklands campaign by Helen Parr. What was it that really struck you about it? I mean, it's not a new book, is it? It's not recently out, but one that obviously made Well, it's just actually been recognised at last. I mean, it came out towards the end of last year. It is a this year book, very much, but then it's it's come to the fore. Um, It's uh, about, it was triggered by the fact that her uncle, Dave uh, was the youngest paratrooper to be killed in the Falklands and she heard about it when she was seven. She's an academic and her father is of a very academic uh, background and Dave only had two CSEs. In fact, I must have come across him. It's a brilliant account of soldiers preparing for battle about being apprehensive about it and their whole culture. Mm. What Helen has done is she's got into the whole story in a way that no journalist I know and no professional soldier who's written about the Falklands has done. He actually shows in miniature Thatcher's Britain in a way Mm. as it's about to become Thatcher's Britain. And, And finally, on the psychology of military incompetence by Norman F. Dixon... I suppose uh, one, as, as in your job, that's going to be a fascinating read, isn't it? Well, again, going down to the Falklands, they were all uh, reading it. A lot of the officers like Mike Rose, um, not that they benefit over much. This is an absolutely brilliant book. It looks at 120 years of the great failures, uh, largely in, in British command. And it's still highly readable and come out in a beautiful edition recently from Folio. It really tells you all kinds of things about intelligence and leadership and perception. Obvious thing about intelligence, people love the intelligence that flatters them. Hmm. It's terribly good to about leadership, empathic leadership. At top of the tree, and he has eight commanders, and he goes through them. Oddly, he's quite a, a strong admirer of Bernard Montgomery. But top of the tree are Bill Slim, no surprise there, mm-hmm. great very successful commander against all the odds in Burma, commanding a huge army as it turned out, but was absolutely loved. But in terms of empathy and understanding the people he commanded as well as the cultures, back to that again, of those he opposed, T. Lawrence, mm. Lawrence of Arabia. So, Robert, you have to choose one of the three. Is it the first one, then, your favourite, if you if you only got time well, for one uh, of them? The, the trouble is... Um, from or for autobiographical, oh yeah, that's a, a really fun book, and I do recommend. It. But for autobiographical reasons, because it's partly my story too, I love Helen Parr's book. Mm. I have to confess, she's become a great friend ah, through this, and I do an a bit of teaching at. Her, <laughs> I do a bit of teaching at her uh, in in her courses at uh, right. at, at Kiel. She's a, she's a, she's a very good writer, uh, late thirties, early forties. One to really watch. Okay, Robert, good to talk to you. Thank you very much. I've got my reading sorted out for the summer. Robert Fox on the London Evening Standard. Thank you. Now, before we go, let's return to the top story and on the subject, uh, that is, of course, of the new Prime Minister. Michael Clark is still with us, Professor Michael Clark and Christopher Lee. Um, Christopher, arguably most sobering job is one of his first jobs on arrival at Downing Street um, to write the letter of last resort. The letter of last resort. This is a letter that is written by the Prime Minister in his hand and there are four copies and it goes to each commander of the bombers, the Trident, what used to be the Trident submarines, the nuclear 
deterrent. And it says, basically, um, if you can't get in touch with the UK, if you can't hear, and this is one of the things they listen for, if you can't hear that Radio 4 is still on, hmm. um, this is what, these are your options of what to do, perhaps. You either fire your missiles, you don't fire your missiles, um, you take your own initi initiative and think of something else, or you actually give your boat over to the command of a surviving ally like the Australians or the Americans. And it is. It is the one point when the, when the, the new prime minister comes from the palace, walks into the cabinet room, and the cabinet secretary says to him, this you have to do now. And Michael Clark, I mean, sobering thought, isn't it, thinking of Boris Johnson sitting in that room on his own, writing a letter from scratch like that? Yes, it's said to be the time when immature leaders suddenly grow up when they realise what the enormity of this really is. <clears throat> and the, the, usually the letters are, you know, are one of four options, usually either fire as, we, as the plan is or don't fire under any circumstances or place the boats under the command of a friendly nation that is still operating like uh, Australia, say, or United States, or make your own decision, which mm. is the cop out of all. It's generally believed, of course, that most prime ministers say don't fire under any circumstances because really they can't commit themselves to something so unknowable. And at the end of, uh, end, of, end of a parliament, the prime minister's letters are destroyed. And there we must leave it, gentlemen. I'm afraid that's all we have got time for. My thanks to our guests, Professor Michael Clark, Alistair Bunkle and Robert Fox. If you have an opinion on any of today's topics, do get in touch. You can tweet at BFBS SITREP. And remember to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Just search for BFBS SITREP. Goodbye for now. <laughs>